Now, last week we considered this question uh, of the nature of Adam uh, before the fall, what was Adam like, and then the effects of the fall uh, on Adam and his posterity, his descendants. And we saw our first main truth was that Adam was, in fact, created in the image of God. And just to summarize, that meant that Adam uh, was created in knowledge, that he knew not merely the truth of God, but that that truth led to his fellowship and communion with God. That he was created in righteousness, meaning that he was free from any guilt, and also then uh, entitled to, if you will, the rewards of righteousness. And thirdly, that he was created in true holiness, that he was without even the tendency to sin within, and in fact was positively bent towards all good uh, things. He had inward holiness leading to outward holiness. Then we came to our second truth, which was that Adam did not remain in this condition, but in fact apostatized, departed and rebelled with a high hand against God. And then we came to the third truth, which we considered uh, last week in the evening, which was that the result of Adam's rebellion, uh, first of all, was that he died physically and spiritually. Death uh, as the punishment of sin and as the natural fruit of sin entered in and he immediately became corrupted in his flesh but beyond that he died spiritually and lost completely the image of God the image of God was effaced it was rubbed off of him in fact it wasn't Adam didn't just become a blank slate then who could be good or evil he became positively corrupted where he had knowledge before he had now ignorance, and in fact, not merely ignorance, but hatred of the truth, because the natural man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Where he'd had righteousness before and stood innocent before God and without a mediator, he now had guilt. And where he had stood in true holiness, he now had the corruption of his whole nature. So that before his fall, where we said that he could be described by the two great commandments, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself, that those things had been true perfectly of Adam, we now saw that as the result of his fall, he became the opposite of those things. That his heart was corrupted and his mind was corrupted and his soul was corrupted and his strength or his will was in fact bent towards evil and instead of loving his neighbor as himself, he became, as it says in the New Testament, uh, hating of one another. And then we saw the unfortunate fact, which is that this corruption of Adam did not stop with Adam. But as it says in Genesis 5, that Adam begot a son after his own image and according to his own likeness. And that which is born of flesh is flesh, John says, chapter 3. So that all of Adam's descendants who come from him in the ordinary way are as corrupt and depraved as Adam was after his fall. But it wasn't merely the corruption of Adam that was passed to his descendants. 
There are essentially three things that we can think about if we consider Adam's sin. There is the sin itself, the transgression. There is the penalty or punishment, the guilt of his sin. And then there is the fruit of his sin, the corruption of his whole nature. Now, we have a very fine inheritance from Adam. We have inherited all three of these things. Now, we've already discussed the corruption of the whole nature, which leaves us with this issue of the inheritance of Adam's sin and the guilt of his sin. Now, it seems strange to talk about inheriting somebody's sin. I mean, what, what exactly does that mean? I mean, how do you, so like, you know, you can inherit somebody's house, or you can inherit somebody's car, or somebody's bank account, we're all for that, but how can you inherit someone's sin? What do we mean by that? What does that expression even refer to? Well, it's like this. When you inherit someone's sin and the guilt of, 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 of their sin, you all probably know what a rap sheet is, a criminal rap sheet. That's when, you, when like, uh, somebody gets arrested and, and, they, and they type their name into the computer and they pull up their record. How many times were they arrested? What were they arrested for? What were they being convicted of? Uh, it's, it's their criminal record. Well, every one of us has, in effect, a criminal record in God's master computer, so to speak. And it lists every single transgression that you have ever committed. Which means that it's rather large. But at the very beginning of it, number one on your list, your personal list, it says the sin in the Garden of Eden. It's on your record. Now, how can that be? How can it be that when you pull up your, your, your criminal record, there it says right there, Adam's sin, number one. It's on your record. Well, it can only be there one of two ways. Either you, in fact, committed that sin, or the person who committed that sin was acting as your representative. And so it is credited to your account by participation or by what we call imputation. You know, faint because we'll explain all of this. And in point of fact, both of these things are true and taught in the scriptures. It just depends on which particular aspect the scriptures are emphasizing at the moment, which particular way they're looking at it, as to which one comes out. And what we're going to talk about this morning is the first of those. That your record lists Adam's sin, and you have the guilt of that sin by participation. Now let me explain to you how significant this is. This means that every person descended from Adam, as the theologians put it, by ordinary generation, in the ordinary way, even if that person did not have a corrupt nature. You, you're born, and you somehow manage not to have a corrupt nature. 
and you somehow manage not to sin ever in your whole life, personally, you would not escape the judgment of God. Because number one on your criminal record is Adam's sin. So you have the guilt of Adam's sin, and that means you get the punishment of Adam's sin because you, in effect, committed Adam's sin. Now, how is it then that we can be said to have committed Adam's sin by participating? Well, first of all, let me explain that this is, as bizarre as this sounds, this is not, uh, it's only bizarre to us because we are so far removed in our modern day from anything even remotely approaching biblical theology. Uh, the view that Adam's sin is ours by participation is in fact the view of Augustine. So we're going back now to what, the 4th century? Is the view of Jonathan Edwards, uh, his predominant view in fact, and a number of other important Reformed theologians in history. But of course the objection is, is obvious. What, what do you mean? I committed Adam's sin. That was at least 6,000 years ago. And maybe more, depending on how you do your biblical chronology. Now, I've only been alive for 29 years, or however long you've been alive, 10 years, 12 years, 50 years, 60 years, whatever. You're not even close to being around when Adam was there. How can you possibly have participated in his sin? That's the most absurd thing I have ever heard. Listen to this, if you like absurd things. You think that's absurd? Genesis chapter 14 is the account of a terrible war that uh, broke out after Abraham, or actually he was being named Abram at this point, and Lot had come to the promised land. And they had, uh, you remember the story that uh, they came there together and Abram said, well, you, you pick the place where you live and I'll take my flocks and people and we'll go live somewhere else. And Lot said, well, I'll take the good stuff. I'll take the plain east of the Jordan River, which happened to be right next to Sodom, which turned out to be kind of a bad deal uh, for Lot's family later on. But nonetheless, Lot was living in the plain next to Sodom. Well, Genesis, first part of Genesis chapter 14, this is before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, is the story of a war. Now what happened is there were five kings. The king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Zoar. All these little regional cities and areas. And they were under tribute to a king named Kedorlaomer of Elam. The five kings were under tribute to Kedorlaomer. Well, they got tired of being under tribute to Kedorlaomer, and they rebelled. They said, we're not going to pay any more money, we're not going to have anything to do with you, you're not going to rule over us anymore, because we're all kings and we're going to do our own thing. Well, Kedorlaomer of Elam kind of got upset by that, because that kind of infringes on his income. So he took three other kings from Shinar, Eleazar, and Goyim, in your Bibles it's translated the king of the nations. Nobody really knows what exactly that means. This is a king of Goyim. And the four kings came and attacked the five kings. And in the process of doing that, they wiped out Sodom and they wiped out Gomorrah uh, in terms of, of pretty much uh, killing a lot of people and taking all of their uh, property. It says they, they spoiled them. And Lot 
who was living next to Sodom gets kidnapped. And all of his property gets taken. So here goes Lot, and he's now a prisoner, and he's been taken away by Kedorlaomer. Well, somebody gets away and comes to Abram and says, you know, guess what? Your, uh, uh, your relative over here has been, has been kidnapped by the you know, evil king Kedorlaomer. He's been carried off. So Abraham gets, Abram gets stirred up, and he sets out with troops. He gets his men, not very many of them actually, he gets his men, and he goes after the four kings, and he... Uh, he wipes out Cato uh, Leomer's group, and he defeats the four kings, and he frees Lot, and he takes all the stuff that they had stolen. He gets it all for himself. Actually, he doesn't keep it, but he takes it. He spoils them, it says. And then we get to verse 17 and what follows. Now, Abram has just defeated them. He's on his way back uh, uh, to where he lived and to return Lot home. And Scripture says this, and the king of Sodom went out to the valley of Sheba, which is called the Valley of Kings, to meet Abram upon his return from the strike against Cater Laomer and against the kings that were with him. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, or Shalem, brought out bread and wine, because he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave Mel Melchizedek, he gave him a tenth, or a tithe, of all the spoils. So Abram comes back, this mysterious guy, appears out of nowhere. He's the priest of the Most High God. He brings out bread and wine. Abram takes a tenth or a tithe of, of what he had taken from Cato Leomer, and he gives it to Melchizedek. Now, I know at this point you're probably saying, what does this have to do with me being guilty for Adam's sin? That's like, is this a different sermon? You know, do you like mix up the pages? No. Uh... Here's where it gets really, really interesting. Hebrews chapter 7. You can turn there if you like. Hebrews chapter 7 is in the course of an argument where the, uh, the author of Hebrews, which nobody actually knows who it is, some think it's Paul, some think it's Luke, the author of Hebrews is teaching the superiority of Christ's priesthood over the Aaronic. Priesthood. He's writing to the Jews, and he's showing how Christ's priesthood supersedes Aaron's priesthood and, and, and the, the, the whole Jewish system. And in the course of making this argument, he refers to this passage. Now, at that point, we're saying, I'm getting even more confused. Why in the world? I mean, it's one thing we're talking about it with Adam's sin and how it relates to me. Now we're talking about it with how how Christ's priesthood is preferred over Aaron's. Well, here we go. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, this Melchizedek is first by interpretation the king of righteousness. And after that also the king of Salem, or Shalem, which is king of peace. He is without father, without mother, and without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but having been made like unto the Son of God, he remains a priest in perpetuity. 
So the point of this is to teach that Melchizedek was a type, an Old Testament type of Christ. Not that we don't really know who Melchizedek was, and, and, uh, but he was a picture in the context of the Old Testament story of Christ. He has neither parents nor children. He's without beginning or end of days. He's a priest in perpetuity, and he's a priest of the Most High God. So he goes on. Now consider how great this man Melchizedek was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. For indeed, they that are the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a command to take tithes from the people according to the law. That is, from their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent, this is talking about Melchizedek, he whose descent is not counted from Levi, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. But it is a standing rule that the lesser is blessed by the greater. And here, men that die receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he, that he lives. And as I may so say, Levi also, who receives tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now that's kind of strange and confusing, so let me just summarize it. The writer is saying that Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to Levi's because Levi paid tithes to him and received a blessing from Melchizedek. And since the greater person blesses the lesser person, that must mean that Melchizedek is greater than Levi. Now, we immediately have to ask the question, well, but Levi wasn't there, right? I mean, Abraham was there. Levi is Abraham's great-grandson. And in fact, Levi wouldn't even be born for at least 170 years. So how is it that Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek and received Melchizedek's blessing? And he says, the author, Levi paid tithes when Abraham paid tithes because Levi was then, as he says, in the loins of Abraham. Now, what I want you to understand here is something very important, because this evening we're going to look at the issue of imputation, of legal representation. The writer is not arguing that Abraham was Levi's legal representative and stood in his place. That is not the argument. What he is arguing is that there is, uh, trust me, I'll explain this, there is an organic unity between Abraham and his great-grandson Levi, so that Levi himself paid tithes to Melchizedek when Abraham did, because he was, in effect, in Abraham. Abraham and Levi were like one. Two people, four generations removed, one person. Now, let's just ignore the big words for now and deal with an implication. If this principle is accurate and it has to be accurate or the book of Hebrews is a book of fiction. It's some rabbinical theology that got shoved in our Bibles by mistake. If this principle is true and if we have 
an organic union with Adam, then it may be fairly said that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. As being yet, if you will, in Adam's loins. So that it was really and truly our sin. And the guilt of it then is our guilt. Now, what do we mean, organic unity? I mean, that's, who talks like that? That's strange. We can understand legal representation, and like I said, we'll get to that this evening. But what do we mean by an organic union between Abraham and Levi, or between Adam and us? Well, the word organic simply means living. Living. It's a living connection that's different from a legal relationship. Let me explain this in a way I think everybody can understand. A pregnant woman has an organic union with the child that is inside her body. Alright? They share the same... They're they're really the same uh, physical person, aren't they? Because if you take the baby away at the early stages, the baby will die. The baby is in an organic union with the mother. Life flows from the mother to the child. They share whatever it is that makes this living connection. Now, consider the difference between that and a mother who goes down to the agency and signs papers to adopt a baby. What does she have? She has a legal relationship with that child. You see how dramatically different those two things are. One is this organic living connection between the mother and the child. The other is a created, a constituted relationship that is created by certain legal documents which she signs and becomes the authorized representative of the child. So, We're talking about a kind of living connection. Now, the main objection a person might bring is this. They say, well, okay. If we have an organic union with Adam, then we know that Christ is the second Adam, so we should have an organic union with Christ. But doesn't the New Testament represent both the guilt of Adam's sin and the blessings of Christ's salvation? as coming by federal representation, by legal representation, by covenant headship. Jesus stood in our place and His righteousness is accounted or reckoned to us. Adam stood in our place and His guilt is reckoned to us. So therefore, we don't have an organic union, a living connection with Christ or Adam. So whatever is the truth about Melchizedek and Levi, this can't be right. Well, that's half the truth. Obviously, much of the New Testament represents this issue as representative. But it is an error to say that the New Testament does not also represent the blessings of salvation and the guilt of Adam as flowing from organic union so that Adam's guilt and Christ's obedience become really and truly ours, not merely legally 
or judicially ours. I want you to consider for a few minutes the scripture doctrine of union with Christ. The scriptures represent the elect as enjoying this organic, this living union with Jesus Christ. Not merely a legal representation. For example, the scriptures talk about Christ as the head and the church of the elect as his body. Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body, the church. Or Ephesians 5.30 and following, I like this one. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Two become one flesh. We are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. Now, I don't know about you, but my head is not enjoying a legal unity with my body. And yours isn't either. It is a living connection. Because if you lose your head, you will be dead. Or, the representation is Christ is a vine, and you are the branches. John 15, that whole section, I'm the vine, you are the branches. I have plants at my house, so do you. Have an orchard, have a garden. I can assure you that I can sign all the documents I want, but it won't make this branch connected to this plant. It won't do anything. That is a living connection. Because if you cut the branch off, it dies. Because it's not connected to the vine. Because life flows from the vine to the branch. Life flows from the head to the body. How about this one? John 6, the whole chapter. He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me and I in Him. That's John 6.56. Christ is the food. But not just any kind of food. He that partakes of me, dwells in me, lives in me, and I live in Him. And of course, then there's the whole host of verses about the way the Spirit dwells in the believer. Just a couple, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. By one Spirit, we are all baptized. This is not talking about water baptism. By one Spirit, we are all baptized into one body and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. And Ephesians 4, 4. There is one body and one Spirit one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and the Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Living union. Now, of course, 
person could say, that's all very interesting, but these are figures of speech. Obviously, Jesus is not a vine. Obviously, uh, we're not the physical body of which Christ is ahead. Obviously, we don't, we don't drink Christ's blood unless you're a Roman Catholic superstition thing. These are figures of speech. They're just teaching a truth. Yes, they are. But what truth are they teaching? They aren't teaching legal representation. They're teaching that salvation and every spiritual blessing that flows from it comes from our living union with Christ. Let's go back over them. Christ is the head, the church is the body. Colossians 2.19 speaks of those who do not hold the head, from which all the body, by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increases with the increase of God. Colossians 2.19 It's teaching that the head, Christ, is nourishing is, is uniting the body, is nourishing it. And it is from that nourishment that sanctification occurs, that the body increases with the increase of God. Let's get a little more specific. John 15, Christ the vine, the elect is the branches. You can't, you can't get any more straight than this. I am the true vine. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it live in the vine, no more can you bear fruit unless you live in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that lives in me and I in him, the same person brings forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Spiritual fruit comes from living union with Jesus Christ. To get even more specific, I am the bread of life. John 6. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and died, he says to the Jews. But this is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven, and if any man eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Truly, truly, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me, and I in him. Where does eternal life come from? It comes from living union with Jesus Christ. This just goes on and on in the New Testament. The Samaritan woman. I'll give you the water that if any man drink of it, he won't thirst anymore. John 7, when he's at the... Uh, I can't remember which feast it is. Uh, but he stands up in the middle of the feast and he says, Come to me and drink. Revelation 21:22, which represents the Lamb as having a pure river of the water of life flowing from Him. And whosoever thirsts, let him come and drink freely of the water of life that flows from the Lamb and from the throne of the Lamb. There is perhaps the ultimate 
argument in Galatians chapter 3. Paul is arguing the Galatians have adopted the law as justifying. They think they can have eternal life through the law. And Paul says, no, no, God preached the gospel to Abraham and he said, through your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So that blessing comes by a promise and the promise is received by faith. So you don't receive the blessing through the law because the law is, is uh, uh, of works it's, uh, and it offers a curse for those who disobey and life for obedience. But the gospel promises life by faith. And he says in, chapter, in verse 13, Now Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. In order that the blessing of Abraham might come on the nations through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Once a covenant has been ratified, even among men, no one sets it aside or adds to it. But the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And it does not say, and to the seeds, plural, but as to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And I say this, that the covenant, which was ratified previously by God to Christ, the law, coming into being 430 years later, does not annul the promise, so as to abolish it. Because if the inheritance is now by law, then it's not by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So why did the law come? It was added because of transgressions. Until the seed should have come to whom the promise was made. And then he explains that the real purpose of the Mosaic law coming was not to undo the promise or to change anything, uh, but to lead men to Christ like a tutor. So the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But faith having come, we're no longer under a tutor. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as were baptized, and this is not water baptism, for as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now let's go back over this. He says, God made a promise to Abraham and to his seed. But the seed it was only one seed of Abraham. And it does not say to the seeds, plural. But it says, and to your seed, singular. Who is that seed? It's Jesus Christ. And to your seed, who is Christ? So the promise was made to Abraham and his seed, who is Jesus. So who inherits the blessings promised to Abraham? Jesus. And Jesus only. Because the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. So how do you inherit those blessings? And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to promise. But wait a second. There's only one seed of Abraham. How can he now say there's many seed of Abraham? He's not saying there are many seed of Abraham. He's just said there's one seed of Abraham. And if you belong to Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, if you're in union with Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, then you are Abraham's seed and you inherit according to the promise. For as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We become Abraham's seed because we become, in effect, a part of Christ. We are the body. He is the head. We are what theologians call one moral person. 
This union is mysterious. And it does not make us part of God. It doesn't make us little gods or some other foul heresy. But it does do something very interesting. 2 Peter 1.4 Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these hold on to your seats that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. Now, anyone who tells you they can explain that is not telling the truth. Because no one can really explain exactly how that works or exactly what it means. But it does not mean only legal representation. Oh, no. No, I think it has something to do with this. I pray that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. The Father is in the Son. The Son is in the elect. And we are all one. We are partakers of the divine nature. So, as with Christ, the second Adam, so with the first Adam. And whether you like it or not, whether you approve of it or not, whether you think it's fair or not, whether you think it's strange or not, you sinned in Adam and you died in Adam and you inherit the sin and the guilt and the punishment before you ever sin personally. Now this evening, we'll consider what is an equally important doctrine, which is Adam's legal representation or his covenant headship. And this is another one that's widely denied, but I tell you this, when you deny these doctrines, you deny your own possibility of salvation. So that should be provocative enough to bring you back.